This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a network on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Karl Schlugel, Professor Emeritus at the Europa Universiteit Viadrina, Frankfurt, to talk about his new book, The Scent of Empire, Chanel No. 5 and Red Moscow, out this year, 2021, with Polity Press. Hello, Professor. How are you today? Hello. I'm fine, thank you. We have beautiful weather in Berlin, despite uh, the pandemic crisis. <laughs> You're under a tight lockdown as well, are you not? Pardon? You're under a tight lockdown as well in Berlin, yes? Yes, yes but it was a little bit opened, and yesterday we walked uh, and strolled in the city and mm. changed the landscape, the cityscape changed a bit, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I think we're, I think we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, let's let's hope. Okay, um, so uh, I really enjoyed your book. I want to start there. Um, so I'm looking at your at your long and very uh, your really productive career, and I see you've made a career of studying Russia and its influence in the 20th century. Um, so your book titles Moscow 1937, Ukraine, a nation on the borderlands, Russian-German special relations in the 20th century, um, et cetera, right? There's, so I see a pretty clear kind of political, uh, well, political history trend. And this book seems a bit different, as if it's on a slightly different path. How did you come to write The Scent of Empire? Yeah, that's true. It's a bit surprising that somebody who has dealt with history of the Russian Revolution, with Stalinism, decided to talk or to write about uh, flacons and perfumes and uh, scent. And uh, somebody asked me, how is it possible that a serious historian on Russian and uh, Soviet history dedicated his book to Karl Lagerfeld. There are worlds between uh, the world of Karl Lagerfeld and uh, the Soviet history. No, it's quite simple, I have to say. Uh, I was uh, years ago writing a book on, um, uh, it was called Archaeology of uh, Communism, and I had always in mind to write one page about scent, about smell, because I lived several years uh, in Moscow and in then in then Leningrad, uh, doing uh, studies and archival work, and there was one thing I was always amazed, and this was a specific scent. 
and especially at very festive uh, opportunities, for instance, in the concert in the Philharmonia or in the inauguration of some uh, um, anniversaries or uh, in, uh, in, in, in the universities. And, uh, and it was always uh, connected to a certain, uh, certain uh, scent. And I had this in my nose, and I just tried to find out where from did it come. And I read uh, cultural history of uh, Russian authors, and they told me, yes, this is called uh, a perfume, a very popular perfume, uh, Krasne Moskva, Red Moscow. So I had the name. But what was much more fascinating and a bit shocking, that there was written that this perfume, this most popular uh, perfume, had uh, has been created even before the Soviet time, before the Russian Revolution. And so there was opened a way for research and, uh, and following the traces where from did come this very popular scent. Uh, but I have to say, uh, somebody living uh, in Berlin and uh, crossing the border uh, at these checkpoints, you always had a feeling that uh, there's a kind of uh, great divide even in the in the uh, dimension of uh, scent and smell. Going across, uh, for instance, at the checkpoint Friedrichstraße, you had the impression that you are leaving, you are leaving the sector of Western uh, world, the supermarkets, etc., and entering an entirely different sensecape. Uh, which uh, was entirely different. So I had always a feeling that there are two worlds uh, with different, different, differently smelling. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you write about that very convincingly. Um, well, you open the book with this vignette. So it's it's 1920, and Coco Chanel and Ernst Bow are meeting in Bow's laboratory in Cannes. Um, an introduction arranged by Dim Dmitry Pavlovich Romanov, who was Chanel's lover uh, and a Russian Duke, Grand Duke in exile in France. And it's all very glamorous, right? And it, uh, it's, it's in this intoxicating scene. Uh, and it's the scene where Coco Chanel uh, chooses Chanel number five. So what happens there? How does she come to do this? Like, how does she choose this? Uh, I know from biographies of uh, Chanel uh, that she was in a kind, uh, um, how to say, she believed in uh, some uh, numbers and she always uh, decided uh, number five. And when Ernest Bo presented her a selection of his compositions, he had about 20, 20, 20 or 25 um, examples or samples of his newly created scent, she decided five. And uh, the number five is obviously for her very important. And later on, she decided uh, to choose uh, the fifth 
uh, of the fifth month uh, to present her, her collection. And in this sense, we have, an, uh, I think, an 100th anniversary uh, this year. Uh, she, yes, she, she believed in the number five, and uh, I think it has to do with her bringing up or uh, yeah, something. her beliefs, yes. So then, but then we shift over to Russia, and the atmosphere changes completely. Um, I think I could hear you know, the song of the Volga boatmen playing quietly in the background while I read this description of the Russian perfume industry in the years after the Russian Revolution. Um, and now we have the House of Bukhar that has become state soap factory number five, later renamed Novaya Zarya. And it's here that a master perfumer, Ogis Dipolitovich Michel, created Red Moscow. Um, and that's a very different scene, right? We have an artist creating a scent. Yes, that's true. That's an amazing story, I have to say. Uh, after the revolution, the French perfume industry, and they had the most prominent factories in the Tsarist and the Russian Empire, they were immediately nationalized. And uh, both uh, factories, uh, Brocard and for which uh, uh, Michel worked, and Raleigh for which um, uh, Ernest Bull worked, they were nationalized. And in after the, the comeback of the economy, uh, they were reunified in a state-owned uh, trust, TG, it was called. And he, he was the chief perfumer of these Soviet-owned uh, perfume trust. And there he created, based on his knowledge of pre-revolutionary perfume industry, these new brands of Soviet perfumes. And um, I mean, we know quite well the story of Ernest Bo in the West. Uh, I mean, he made a career, beautiful career, after coming back from Russia after the civil war uh, in, in France. Uh, but uh, Michel is a quite different uh, a g- different case. Um, he remained in Russia. It's not quite clear why. Obviously, he lost his papers. He could not uh, emigrate as most of the French community in in Saint Petersburg and Moscow did. He stayed there. And he agreed to work and to reconstruct the perfume industry. And obviously, and uh, later on, when he, when the diplomatic relations between France and the Soviet Union were, uh, were established, he got a passport, but he did not want to leave the country. Obviously, he was fascinated to do this uh, job. In, in the newly created Soviet perfume industry. But his fate uh, ended, as we know, not very happily. We know only from an interview made in 1936 that he was uh, the teacher of a new generation of Soviet perfumers. He created new 
brands. But in 37, in the years of the great purges and the great terror, he disappeared. And it's not clear, was he involved into the purges? That means, did he suffer from the purges? Was he killed, executed, or deported? Uh, or did he just uh, disappear in the vast space of the Soviet empire? We, we don't know. But uh, a lot of foreigners uh, or foreign-born people in the Soviet Union in these 30s uh, suffered a lot from uh, the Stalinist uh, state terror. Yeah. The the time of the Great Purges, I mean, a few people came out of that well, right? Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about setting this up, the juxtaposition um, of these two scenes. And they really set up the book. And I, I would like to know how you chose to start here, why you wanted to put, you know, this, this like light, breezy Chanel chooses a thing versus... The state, the state soap factory number five creation of Red Moscow. Why did you Why did you start here? Uh, I started uh, there because I knew the story of the Soviet perfume Krasnaya Moscow, Red Moscow, and um, and I did not know up to this point that there's the story of Chanel, and I just uh, brought together two stories which have been uh, perceived and read always as separately and entirely different stories. On one side, there was this Chanel and Chanel number five story, and on the other side, the Red Moscow story. And the fascinating thing for me was that both came from the same background. That means from uh, French perfume culture, in the first wave of globalization in the pre-war time. And both perfumes created in a, in a very paradoxical situation uh, that means on the occasion of the 300th uh, anniversary of the Romanov dynasty, that means uh, dedicated to a dynasty which was deemed uh, to fall. Uh, in the years after. And so um, I tried to come back to the common uh, origin of two remarkable perfumes, um, which in a divided world after 1917 uh, had their own careers, but that had that they had a joint uh, origin or background in the first wave of globalization in the pre-revolutionary days that was fascinating and um, and uh, I mean you made or I made some observations for instance that the flacon number five was in uh, in great in the great exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York and uh, uh, but nobody had an idea that there was a Soviet perfume, which was also uh, also very prominent, and only after the end of the great divide of the world, after the end of the Cold War, it seemed to me that we could reunify uh, the the world 
the divided world of of scent. So this was the uh, the conclusion I came. I never had an, a plan to write a story of scent in the 20th century or to write a story of the 20th century along uh, the development of scent. But uh, it just... Um, it, it, became, it became clear for me that there is a lot of, um, of common uh, features uh, in these development, in the careers of the creators, uh, of the people who created the world of scent. Well, let's talk about the two women who we who you focus on here, Coco Chanel and then Polina. Oh, I'm going to murder this Zemshuzina Molotova. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, the, and then a lot of you spend a lot of time with the two of them, um, and their stories are really important in helping us to understand the way Europe moved on. I mean, if not necessarily forward in the 20th century, post Great War, in this. Uh, Age of Extremes, as Hobsbawm's going to call it. Why, why these two women? Um, yeah, it was uh, only discovering the, the traces. I had not uh, on my display in the first moment uh, to make this comparison between these two careers, but it's, it is so obvious. I mean, the career of uh, Gabrielle Chanel, we know quite well born in 1883, and uh, she died in uh, 1971. Uh, And we had many biographies and uh, telling about uh, her her, uh, pioneer work in modernizing and revolutionizing uh, women's dress, uh, her ideas of a new uh, modern, simple, practicable uh, fashion. We knew her relations to the uh, Russian community in Paris. We know also about her yeah, cooperation with the Germans uh, during the occupation of uh, France and her second war, uh, after the Second World War career, her take off again. That we know in all details. And uh, I had, um, and only uh, when I started to deal with the Red Moscow, I realized that there is also another carrier. This is Polina Shemchujina Molotova. I mean, we really, we mostly know uh, the name of Vyacheslav Molotov, the second man behind uh, Stalin, the author or partner of the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact in 1939, etc., a lifelong uh, cooperator and partner of, of Stalin. And we did not know, or, or we perceived his wife only in the shadow of this second man behind Stalin. But in fact, she had her own career. She was born in 1897. She entered from very humble social background. She was born in a Jewish shtetl, a little town in the, close to Kiev. Uh, in the south of the former Russian Empire. 
she uh, entered the revolution and uh, civil war and she got to know uh, Vyacheslav Molotov very early in the 2021 or 22 and she was working in the nationalized perfume industry uh, since the 20s. She made a career and she became even the people's commissar uh, for light industry. And uh, the was, she was the only person, uh, uh, the only woman who took this job, the highest job of mm-hmm. this uh, uh, ministry. Um, and uh, her fate then was entirely different from from uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Chanel's. Uh, in the after the war, she was accused to have relations to nationalistic and uh, so-called Zionist circles. Uh, she was accused. She was excluded uh, from the party. Uh, and she was uh, sent into exile uh, in behind the Urals. And she spent five years, uh, five years in in this uh, exile. And uh, she came back in um, fifty three, and she came, She was liberated from uh, exile and from prison uh, five days after the day when Stalin died. And she was shocked uh, because she was a believer. She believed in in Stalin. And uh, up to the end of her life. Uh, But we have to say that, um, that, uh, that she never succumbed and, uh, and did accept the accusations uh, uh, which were made against her in this case in the late 40s. So she was a tough woman. Or a, a term I would like to, to use uh, from the Russian literature, the iron woman. And in a certain way, uh, Coco Chanel and Polina Shemchujina uh, they are for me different forms of this iron, this generation of iron woman uh, in the early or the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, well, because Coco Chanel appears to believe in nothing. Um, she'll her political position just she's not interested, and she will side with anyone as opposed to uh, Polina, who is a true believer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Um, I'd like to talk for a minute about your decision to use scent as an historical lens. This is also new for you, and um, I, I'm curious about how you interacted with the historiography. So I'd actually like to take a second and read from the English translation of the book. Uh, so, the slightest disruption to our everyday smells, uncollected rubbish, for instance, pops the deodorized bubble in which we usually live, causes irritation and unease. We must make an effort to bear a stench. We suffer not only from the tyranny of intimacy, but from the world of smells produced by that intimacy. We do not want it to, want it to touch us. Progress is measured by the suppression of stench, and what we consider pleasant or repugnant is an aspect of the lordship-bondage relationship described by Hegel and Marx, the struggle between the center and the periphery, between above and below, 
between people living in close proximity between the West and the non-European world. Now, I realize those actually may seem like weird words to you because you've written in German, but um, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I just want to stop and revel in that prose. It's such a beautiful paragraph. It's evocative and effective, and I like get it on what you're saying. And, and you elevate our noses. Um, and I suddenly had to see a discussion about the nature of progress itself centering on the nose. Um, and I want to talk about this. You're like using scent as an historical lens. Like there's so much about the interaction between memory and sense of smell. On some level, if history is institutionalized and formalized societal memory, we should be engaging with smell all the time. But we don't. Um, how did you make this decision? Why did you decide to engage here? Did it strike you that like smell is an interesting thing? I don't know. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for this uh, quotation. Uh, I mean, it's again a very elementary observation, um, and uh, to follow the the senses, uh, which is very important. Uh, I mean. Uh, there is a kind of hierarchy in that uh, theory is much more than experience, that to will is much more than uh, than the existence, that um, um, uh, theory uh, is uh, based mostly on one sense, that means the I, the visuality, or the ear, the audio scape. And um, if we take, uh, or I'm convinced that you can write history, a complex history which reflects the complexity of life, you have to, to refer or to bring into all your senses, the eye, the ear, the taste, uh, the nose, etc. And some people, I mean, uh, like Schopenhauer or Nietzsche, they were convinced that uh, that the the order, the smell, and the sense, this sense, is so important as uh, to the the the, the visual uh, the visual sense. So. Uh, I think historiography should take into account all senses. And for instance, you, from my field, you cannot write a history of the Russian Revolution without uh, chain, without uh, describing the changing uh, landscape, the changing uh, sandscape or soundscape. Uh, uh, in, 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 during the process of, of revolution, the social uh, tribulations, the social uh, changes are reflected in all dimensions. And I'm interested to bring back to bring back all these different dimensions of experience and not only one. And uh, I think this will give historiography a much fuller uh, uh, and um, more embracing uh, capacity to understand uh, what is going on. And I mean, we all know this, um, this uh, 
situation in uh, in Marcel Proust's uh, A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, that uh, one uh, moment can bring back the entire uh, world of uh, your childhood in one moment. Yeah, and this is an everyday. This is an everyday experience, and uh, historians should uh, should also uh, paying um, respect to these uh, everyday and elementary uh, experiences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, um, absolutely. Like, you know, we know this, that memory and is really linked to scent. For instance, Chanel number no. five is the perfume of my mother. And just thinking about it, I, like, I smell it, I conjure, uh, I'm seven, you know, and she's getting ready to go out. It's very cool. Mm. But, and perfume is an attempt really to crystallize a moment, to, to, to cement this moment in time in like this olfactory scent way. But at the same time, these are fleetings. These are very fleeting scents. Like we don't know what red Moscow smelled like mm-hmm. before, um, nor really Chanel Number no. Five. I mean, so does that's problematic, right? How do you do a history of this moment that's lost? Uh, perdu. Yeah, that's true. That's a really very, a very tough <laughs> question, and um, I tried to get in contact with the. Uh, Osmotique, the Museum of uh, Scents and Perfumes in Versailles and other museums. And they have their copies and uh, you could, uh, you, you can go through the register and the entirely uh, repertoire of, of scents. Um, uh, I mean, there is one way. Uh, you have uh, the, uh, the chemistry, you have the for chemistry, and they can rediscover, reanalyze the composition of uh, of perfumes as far as they exist. The problem with the common origin of Chanel Number no. Five and uh, Red Moscow is that um, the original flacon and the original flacons, which uh, uh, existed in the pre-revolutionary time from 1913. They do not exist, and the flacons, yes, but without uh, content. So there's the way of uh, trusting uh, or based on, on chemistry. The other way is description. I mean, the perfumers have a prose uh, which is very, very uh, elaborated, and we have descriptions of how it smells. And I especially quoted uh, the memoirs of another perfumer who came uh, together with Beau uh, from Russia to uh, to France, uh, Konstantin Verigin. And he just has written a kind of, in his memoir, a kind of, a kind of encyclopedia of the sense of the... Uh, from the dawn of the empire, uh, 
I mean, he came from a very uh, well-to-do and rich uh, aristocratic family, but he is describing the entirely repertoire of the sense uh, of uh, his childhood, of the school class, of uh, the streets on the Crimea where they were in the summer uh, holidays. Uh, He is describing the the order and smell of, of the woods and the fields. And so I think description uh, is one way to try to, to objectivize uh, uh, what uh, smell and scent is. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is a problem that art historians deal with as well. How do you talk about you know colors as that don't that may not be with us anymore but sense much more fleeting right but um you, you so you devote a chapter to the development of the new woman that represents this profound and purposeful break with the past that's really striking in the 20th century which is part of the study of parallel lives um that you have of uh nadezhda lamanova mm-hmm. sorry yeah and coco chanel can you can you comment on this the new woman and comparing these women yeah uh, I mean, uh, Coco Chanel is, is no, uh, she is not only the uh, branding uh, Chanel number no. five. She has made history in fashion uh, by her, the creation of the black, uh, uh, the little black, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the little black dress, the LBD. Yes, right, and. Um, um, yes, I had a chapter, or this is a chapter about uh, fashion, because it's very surprising that there are parallels too. Uh, and Nadezhda Lamanova, uh, she came also uh, from the pre-revolutionary time, and uh, and she entered the way of how to get rid of the old-fashioned Belle Epoque uh, uh, Belle Epoque fashion, and it's very um, uh, strange and, and fascinating to see that you have parallel movements in uh, designing the new clothes of the modern woman. It should be simple, it should be practical, it should be uh, helping a uh, woman to combine a family and, and work. And um, I mean, the twenties in the the twenties in the Soviet Union was the time of avant-garde of experimenting uh, with colors, with uh, every every type of, of design, not only uh, fashion, uh, furniture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there was one a very important um, uh, exhibition in Paris, nineteen hundred twenty-five. Uh, the exposition of uh, Art Deco. And uh, I would say this is one uh, situation and one point where uh, two different ways of modernity, of modern design came together. There was a very prominent uh, uh, appearance of of, uh, Soviet uh, costume uh, designers, uh, fashion, uh, and 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 the French, uh, so um, uh, these parallel. Uh, or when I tried to to parallelize uh, the the 
type of thinking and the type of expectations and the, the parallel of forms, it is not uh, my projection or I, I think mm-hmm. it was really a parallel uh, development uh, uh, in this uh, early 20th century uh, modernity. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and then you describe this very close relationship between the beautiful people of Paris and Moscow in the whole of the first half of the 20th century, a list of regular commuters that includes a good number of cultural heavy hitters who determined not only uh, couture trends, but also intellectual fashions. So perfume here, I mean, it's, it's another way of connecting the story of high culture and the intelligentsia, yeah? Um. Uh, I, I mean, this um, uh, relation was, uh, uh, it's a chapter for for itself. Uh, uh, Karl Lagerfeld was always talking about the Russian connection in Paris. And we have to imagine or to reflect that Paris was in the, in the 1910s, in the immediate decade before the revolution and in the 20s, it was a center of the Russian world. I mean, of artists, uh, uh, of, uh, of writers, uh, but uh, also the aristocracy. And after the revolution, uh, thousands, thousands of people, refugees uh, from uh, the October Revolution, and they all brought uh, something with uh, them, uh, and especially taste, culture, refined uh, style, etc. And a lot of uh, of uh, these people worked also for for uh, Gabriel Chanel, and he was uh, very close uh, to the Russian artist. Uh, uh, community. I mean, Sergei Diaghilev as the grand uh, entrepreneur of the arts, the the uh, impresario of the ballet russe and the saison russe, etc. But there was a movement in the other direction too. The left uh, intelligentsia from Paris moved to to Moscow to see the creation of the new world. I mean, uh, up to the 30s when André Gide and other people traveled uh, to Moscow. Uh, of course, uh, uh, disappointed after what they realized uh, what took place with the show trials and especially after the Hitler-Stalin Treaty in 39. But this was a very stable and uh, a very intensive bridge uh, and uh, transfer of taste, culture, ideas, and which was broken, in fact, uh, in the consequence of the war, and especially this very, very long Cold War, when uh, we did not know what happened on the other side. And uh, I have uh, many other examples. For instance, uh, Christian Dior, uh, another very important person. He was in the late 20s with other people, Le Corbusier and others in Moscow. And uh, he came back in the 50s and his presentation of his fashion in, in I think, in 59. It was a great cultural event, uh, bringing back and reconstructing 
the intellectual and the stylistic uh, relations which um, existed uh, before uh, before mm-hmm. the wartime. So we see the parallel kind of development of the new woman. We see these intellectual con- connections, the the an ongoing love affair with the that the left has with the ideas of the Russian Revolution, if not how they play out. Um, we see you know this the this ongoing conversation, um, and then you have in your um, your final chapter you talk about another connection. Another way we can see these this parallel development, which is about the very famous perfume bottles, um, and again full of these surprise connections. Um, so I'm enchanted by the design for the perfume bottle uh, for the perfume North, which is this bottle that looks like an iceberg topped by a polar bear, and that it's just it's beautiful and very fascinating. But the real story I think is about the Spartan minimalist glass cube. That's the bottle for Chanel number no. five. Yes. And that's in the MoMA, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But um, and it's long been linked to abstract popular art, and you cite the Dutchman Piet Mondrian as an example. But you propose something else about the bottle for Chanel Number no. Five. Uh, yeah, I, I mean this uh, to to discover or to see that uh, the master of the modern painting, uh, Kazimir Malevich, was the designer of the most popular, uh, most popular uh, bottle of uh, Eau de Toilette, uh, Seveny, the North. Uh, it was really a kind of, of shock uh, for me, which, uh, uh, which, um, brought me to understand uh, about that millions of people used this beautiful designed uh, bottle of the uh, with the polar bear beer uh, they did not know about that it was created by Kazimir Malevich and I also as somebody who knows something about uh, painting, about uh, the avant-garde, I had no idea that this genius was in 1910 just uh, making money for his family, working in the Bocar fabric to design this bottle. So, yeah, this was really a um, um, great uh, surprise. And... Uh, the idea is uh, finally to, at the end of the division of the world, to bring together the stories, the different stories. Uh, and my proposal is to bring back, uh, to bring together the bottle of uh, number five, Chanel number five, and the Krasnaya Moscow in Moscow, and, uh, and uh, uh, the Malevich uh, designed uh, bottle. It would be very interesting, interesting, but in the moment all these museums are closed as far as I know. Yeah, right now we're not seeing anything. Uh, you also, like, you, you, there are pictures in the book of um, flasks, like Soviet flasks, which evoke Chanel number no. 5 as well. Uh, I didn't uh, understand. The, the fly? Uh, um, these vodka bottles, basically. Um that, oh yes, yes, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I did not answer oh. your your question. No, no problem. Yeah. Of course. Yes, uh, 
there's always the interpretation, mostly of art historians, that the uh, Chanel design, these clear-cut uh, forms, these uh, uh, transparent uh, and uh, anti-ornamentalistic, anti-floral design, is yeah the spirit of the epoch this is true but they bring it uh, mostly together with the ideas of constructivism with the pete mondrian's uh, uh, painting etc uh, this uh, geometrization uh, and and these clear-cut lines of design but um, when i looked uh, first at the at the uh, designs of the bottles of Raleigh and uh, Brocard, but especially uh, of Raleigh uh, in in Russia, uh, it uh, seemed me quite clear. I mean, uh, this is a thesis of, of uh, my thesis. I, I cannot uh, finally uh, um, prove it, but I'm quite sure that the original uh, design comes from the bottles used by the members of the Tsarist army uh, containing vodka under any uh, circumstances, and these are they were called in the in the German Baltic uh, with the German Baltic name Stoff, um, and these are uh, small. Uh, bottles, uh, mostly green or brown uh, color, sometimes also uh, transparent. And uh, in, in these bottles, they had their uh, portion of, of vodka, which is uh, in sun, uh, in, in cold uh, climate or temperature always, should always with you. Uh, and um, if you put these Stoff bottles uh, uh, if you compare these Stoff bottles with the uh, Raleigh and the Chanel Number no. Five bottle, it's quite clear it's not Piet Mondrian, but it's rather the bottle which has this origin, as I, I think, I believe correctly. Um, it's it's fairly convincing just looking at the pictures. I'm like, well, I recognize that bottle. Um, and it's certainly something about uh, that's in the air about d just utility, right? And the idea yeah. of mm -hmm. the utility of the age. I, I just, I find this is something I'm very impressed by, by the book that I, I'm kind of going to take away with me, this connection between what we consider, you know, these very different worlds as exemplified by a luxury product is, is amazing to me. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, I, I cannot explain, but uh, all what uh, Gabriel Chanel created and uh, helped to uh, create, it's just um, the creation of, of a genius. She had uh, um, a feeling for what is, uh, what is uh, uh, perfect. And the design of the Chanel 5 uh, is just perfect. You cannot uh, develop uh, this form. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot transform it or to, to make it better. It's a, a perfect form. 
And uh, the same is the case, I would say, with the clothes she designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's perfect. You cannot, uh, you cannot make it better. You can make something uh, uh, different things, but this type uh, of this subject is perfect. And this is, uh, I would say, the reason why it is still the most popular and most accepted and most uh, admired uh, thing which exists in in fashion or in in, in perfume industry. Yeah, it's very hard to argue with the House of Chanel. Um, Although, I mean, I see something as beautiful, as functional and as interesting, uh, at least in fashion, I see it with uh, Lama Nova's work as well. It's just beautiful things. Um, you know, so this, but this takeaway about the connection between Paris and Moscow is, is, and, and, and the luxury and the high culture is, is fascinating. Um, and I would like to, before we close, I'd like to take a turn, um, to discuss, uh, 23 Nicolas, yeah, Nicolskaya street, uh, and the proposed plan here. Can you, can you tell us what's going on with this in Moscow? Um, yeah, I know that uh, still they are organized by the very important uh, non-government organization Memorial tours mm-hmm. around the Lubyanka, this place or this square in the center of Moscow, where all the the center of the of the secret police of NKVD and to today FSB is. And um, uh, across the Lubyanka Square is Nikolskaya Street, and number, I think, 23. And number 23, I know it from, uh, I have been quite often, because there are some institutes and bookstores. Uh, there's a an, an house uh, empty since years, and they try... Uh, to and there's an entrepreneur or businessman who tries to get this uh, this uh, this uh, house uh, to establish a, um, a fashionable restaurant, bookstore, wine store, uh, etc., and and a perfume store. Mm-hmm. And the scandalous thing is that this is one of the most uh, contaminated places in Moscow. It was the the site of the um, war criminal court, uh, where immediately there have been judged thousands of people, and where in the next surrounding have been executed thousands of people. And the organization Memorial is fighting since years for establishing a memorial site for the uh, dozens of thousands of people who have been judged in this place. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very strange thing that um, at the memorial site for the victims of the Stalin time terror should be established uh, um, um, 
Yeah, this luxury goods uh, shopping yes, mall. A shopping mall for luxury goods, uh, including uh, perfumes. So it's it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, bizarre, and it's not. Uh, I did not invent it, but uh, in a certain way, um, history um, is always um, following some uh, traces which are unexpected and. Mm -hmm. uh, and surprising. Uh, I do not know the last uh, moment, what is, no, uh, what is going on now, but there are going on discussions, as you probably know, how to re-renovate the place uh, before the square, before, in front of the Lubyanka um, mm -hmm. structure. And there is going on a discussion of the restoration of Felix Zajinsky, the first uh, chief of the JK and the secret police. And um, so uh, it's open what, what will happen. But it's just, it's, it's a telling, right? It's this interesting kind of flashpoint that you have in the home of the secret police where I would, tens of thousands of people are sentenced to death, that there's this idea that you should have a perfume store there and that this is so problematic, right? Because the idea of a wine store, coffee shop, bookstore, perfume, these luxury goods that are, are so enjoyable sitting on top of this place that's so, as you said, contaminated is, is really alarming. And it's, it's really striking nerves. Um, Yes. You. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's uh, the problem how a society, a given society, in this case, the Russian society, is uh, dealing with uh, uh, its past and mm -hmm. to come to terms with the past. And uh, uh, I mean that, uh, that the intervention of uh, Memorial is very, very necessary. And uh, I mean, they have an initiative in this moment uh, to make signs uh, on the houses where people disappeared and uh, have been victimized. It's called the, the last address. And mm. this, of course, is not only one last address. Uh, in this uh, house have been... Have been uh, uh, decided the fates of uh, at least uh, some 10,000, uh, 40,000 people. And the, in the context of the book, of course, uh, the husband of uh, Polina Shantuzina, Vyacheslav Molotov, he was one of the most, uh, of, the con of, the, of the people who signed the judgments uh, together with mm. Stalin and... Uh, and uh, others. Uh, so uh, I, I think retelling the entire story uh, of the tragedies and uh, of, uh, of unbelievable uh, tragedies and fates of people is uh, very, very mm -hmm. Uh, necessary, and I, I'm hopeful that the Russian society will uh, come yeah. with it. 
Well, just to bring this discussion back to scent, um, you in the book you cite um, a protest, the suggested protest, um, which is the creation of a fragrance called Composition Number no. Twenty Three for Twenty Three Nicholas Sky Street, and in protest of the idea of putting a perfume store there, someone has developed developed this. This, uh, you know, they propose this. It's um, obviously satirical, but. Composition number 23 opens with notes of the old papers and inks that were used to sign the death sentences. The story continues with the aroma of a damp basement, soon followed by the main ingredient, a sharp smell of gunpowder, which is gradually replaced by a note of ash, leaving behind a bitter aftertaste, which is such an evocative and appropriate protest. Yeah, this was uh, the idea of some people from uh, Memorial and... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read it in Novaya Gazeta in one of the uh, leading oppositional or liberal newspapers, uh, newspapers which uh, still exist. And we have to look what is going on with this uh, initiative and with the preservation of the place and the site of, of memory. Uh, okay, I've taken up so much of your time. I just have a couple more questions. So what is next? What are you working on now, Professor? Uh, as you know, it's not good to talk about books which are <laughs> in work in progress. But it may be very surprising. Uh, I decided after being having been two years in Los Angeles, uh, to write my book on America, and, uh, uh, and it will be a kind of parallel book to which I have published uh, uh, three years ago, and which is also coming out in English, The Soviet Century. And it is my view on, the, on, on America, which... I visited since the late 60s, so I have some experience. And of course, my perspective is a comparative perspective. What is what looks like and what is different uh, uh, entering uh, Russia and entering uh, America. So I, I hope it will be. Uh, I will try to come to terms with my image of <laughs> these two worlds. Yeah, ah, I'm fascinated by this. I'm looking forward to to reading this. Should it happen? I mean, not good, right? I, I don't want to jinx you. Um, so uh, I want to end just by congratulating you, Harley, on this book. Um, you're an award-winning historian, uh, and it's no surprise that it is an outstanding book, that it's an excellent piece of history, really well-researched. Um but I'm still, I was just so impressed by the craft of the book and the storytelling. I don't know anyone to whom I would not recommend it. Halfway through reading it, I stopped to pre-order a copy for my brother in the States, uh, who has a longstanding relationship with Bulgakov's Master and Margarita, and he will eat right. this book up. So congratulations on that. And listeners, go to our website, newbooksnetwork.com, and follow the link to Bookshop to order this. Go directly to your local bookstore and order this. I cannot say strongly enough. You will not be sorry. Read this book. Um, Thank you so much for writing it, Professor Schlogel. And thank you so much for your time. I wish you a lovely rest of your day and a lovely 2021. I thank you very much for this wonderful talk. Thank you. All right. Cheers. 